Good morning. Uh, today's passage is from Galatians 4, 21 through 5, verse 1. If you could please turn there and stand for the reading of God's word. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through promise. These things are being taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate woman will be many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as, as then the child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the spirit, so also now. But what does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, let me pray for us uh, before we uh, enter into God's word. Um, Father, uh, we are thankful that you've brought us together today to worship your name through our great, gracious, merciful, uh, loving Savior, Jesus. Uh, we pray that you would uh, present him to us today and that we would uh, trust in his name, um, that we would um, continue to, to grow up into him. Um, and thus, we would grow uh, more one with one another, uh, that we would grow in love for one another. Um, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So to kind of start in this Galatians passage, I kind of concluded that we need to like talk about two teachings or doctrines that are kind of pivotal for reading it, but are not necessarily directly taught in it. And so I wanted to start by just laying out, think of it like as, uh, you, know, you know, the kind of repeated analogy of glasses, right? You're putting on something that's going to help you read and get to the, the intention of the author. Um, so two doctrines. The first one is kind of been traditionally called the three uses of the law. The three uses of the law. It's been uh, put into many confessions of faith over time. Uh, one of the earliest Baptist confessions of faith, which is called the Second London Confession of 1689, it's uh, in that. It's also been enshrined in resident remedy scholar M Andy Pittman. Um, he once wrote a paper uh, on the gospel and the law, and he wrote this, uh, and this captures the three uses uh, really well. The law serves as a governmental restraint of evil, that's one, as a mirror of God's perfect righteousness, that's two, and as a guide for the Christian in their life, that's three. So it's a, a governmental restraint of evil, 
It's a mirror that shows us our need for righteousness, our need for a savior to bring us back to God. And it's also a guide for the Christian. Um, so I'm going to kind of run through each one of those just briefly. Uh, the, so the first one is, is pretty simple. It, it curbs sin by threat of punishment. You do this, there's punishment for it. It doesn't get rid of sin. It can't deal with the ultimate issue of sin, but it curbs it in a sense. It's outbreaks because of threat of punishment. Paul uses this use of the law in Romans 13 would be an example. The law is a mirror. It, it shows us the, the standard of God. It shows us our own heart. And when we put those two things together, we see a big gap called a need, a need for the Savior. Paul uses this mirror, this, this use of the law in Galatians 3, 23 through 24. And I'm going to step out in faith in, in our treasure seekers uh, students. Does anybody go to treasure seekers? Raise your hand if you go to treasure seekers. Okay. We're going to go to the New City Catechism. And you guys, you're not going to let me down. We're going to question 15. And I'm going to try to read it like Miss Miller, but we'll see. Um, all right. So you're, I'll, I'll get the question, and then I want you guys to recite it back as loud as you can. Since no one can keep the law, what is its purpose? Yep, that was it. Good job. Uh, so again, if you guys did, if you didn't hear it, they said that we may know the holy nature of God, right? Uh, the third use of the law is the law as a guide for Christians to know how to live in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. And, and Paul uses this, uh, for instance, in Romans 3, 31. So my point is, is throughout scripture, Old and New Testament, you have the law being used. And when I say law, I mean the moral law, the Ten Commandments enshrined in the Ten Commandments. You see the moral law being used in three different ways. And all of those ways are legitimate and good. And sometimes, right, I have a temptation of when I read Paul, when I read the New Testament, we can maybe come across as saying the law is bad, it's evil, it's, it's not what we want. It's not good, right? And this is not the view, uses of the law. He's bashing the misuse of the law. So he's not bashing the uses of the law, but he's bashing a misuse of the law. So the beginning of our text, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, right? He gives that meaning back in chapter 3, verse 21, where he says, for if a law had been given that could give life righteous, sorry, if, for if a law had been given that could give life, righteousness would indeed be by the law. So what he's saying there is, it's not the law that's the problem, it's the way that you're using it. You're using it to gain life. You're using it to gain righteousness, a status before God. That's what Paul sees as evil, but the law itself remains uh, good. So this is not a use of the law, but rather a misuse of it. So that's the first one, the three uses of the law. I think that's helpful when we're reading Galatians in general, but particular passage today as well. The second one, uh, the second doctrine or, or hermeneutic, a way of kind of interpreting and reading through scriptures that I think will be helpful for us in life and in general as we read the scriptures, but also today, 
This has been coined uh, by scholars as covenant theology. Covenant theology. Um, there are books, many, many, many books written on this subject. We're going to just say a few words. So I'm not going to do it justice, but I'm going to get your feet wet it, it, you know, in it, and then you can go read those books or talk to me and we can talk about it more. Uh, so here's the, the basic concept. All of the Bible's narrative is presented to us through covenants. So Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Jeremiah 31 talks about the new covenant. Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood when he gives them the, the cup to drink. Behind these biblical covenants are two principles, which could also be called main covenants or principal covenants, all right? One is the covenant of works, and the other is the covenant of grace. These two principal covenants can really be found in the very first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 through 3. The covenant of works is established by God with Adam when he creates everything, and he places Adam, and then eventually Eve, in the garden. And then there's two trees of importance that are listed off in the garden. There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then there's the tree of life. They're then given a command that includes a, a kind of curse that if you don't obey the command, right? And the command is, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and for disobedience, you're promised death. And then there's an implied blessing. If you don't eat of that tree, but you eat of the tree of life, you'll live forever and you'll be with me, right? So eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you die. Eat of the tree of life, implied, you live forever. Adam then listens to the voice of his wife, who then took the fruit and gave it to her husband. And then Adam knowingly and intentionally chooses to disobey God and eat the fruit. The covenant of works is broken. God then comes to enact and install the curses for breaking the covenant. In a word, death. But this is where we find the second one, the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is given in the very midst of the curse for the covenant of works. He gives it in the very midst of it. Genesis 3.15, in the midst of cursing the serpent, God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so here in the first three chapters of Genesis, we already have the promise of the incarnation that someone, the seed of the woman, will destroy the work of the serpent and essentially reverse the curse. So we already have that. A little bit later, a few verses later in the same chapter, Genesis 3, Adam responds in faith by naming Eve, Eve, right? Which means mother of the living. But remember, they had just been cursed and told that they're going to die. And now Adam's hearing in the midst of the curse the promise of the Christ through Eve, names her the mother of living. And the very next verse, God responds to the faith of Adam, and it says this in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them, indicating a little bit more of that promise that not only is it a seed of Eve, but the seed of Eve will die to cover 
your sins, to reverse the curse. All of that is set up in Genesis 1 through 3. So it is the death of Christ which covers our curse, our sins. And then every covenant in the Bible, the ones that I mentioned, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, these are all just new administrations of that covenant of grace, that promise. And so it just furthers, it further focuses on the promise. And as you go through scripture and you read, it zeroes in further and further until finally Christ is born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law. And so this is, this is a, a kind of brief, rough summary of covenant theology and again, I, I think Paul, I'm, I'm confident that Paul is reading scripture in this way. He's reading it through those two uh, original covenants going on in Genesis 1 through 3. So again, Galatians 4, 4 through 5, it's a bit before our passage. It says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. That's a reference to Genesis 3:15 promise, born under the law a reference to the bondage that comes to us when we seek righteousness through doing works. To redeem those who are under the law, that's to free us from the curse that we're now under because of Adam, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's to bring us the promises of the, prom of the covenant of grace. And so all that's going on in the background of our text. And so again, there's another thing that I want to just kind of put forward. This isn't theology, so to speak, but as we've kind of been going through chapters three and four, Paul has been heavily dependent upon Genesis chapter one all the way through chapter 21. He's essentially just been reading Genesis and interpreting it for us and applying it to the churches at Galatia. I just want to give a few examples of this. Um, so in Galatians three through four, sorry, uh, let me read. Paul references Genesis 15, that's Abraham's justification, and then Genesis 12, that's a promise of Abraham. He references that in chapter 3 early on in Genesis. He then turns to the idea of curse, which goes back to Genesis 1 through 11. That's the only time we find, we find five curses through Genesis 1 through 11, and then in the promise of Abraham, we find five blesses or blessings to kind of reverse it. Uh, and so we see that also used here. He then turns to Abraham again, kind of midway through chapter 3 in verses 15 through 16, showing that Christ is the offspring of Abraham for 4. He then does, uh, last week's sermon, we saw a lot of childbirth and pregnancy analogies, right, that Paul uses uh, to communicate love, his emotion for the Galatians, his example for the Galatians. But it also served as a kind of segue into this week's passage, which happens to also be dealing or using a story of two women who are pregnant and have two offspring. And so that's kind of the segue that we get. So in our text today, we're going to use those two doctrines that I talked about, the uses of the law and covenant theology, and we're going to look at two types of pursuing the promise. There's pursuing the passage. Paul applies the very promise that we pursue four specific ways to the churches of Galatia and obviously to any church, right? Um, so that's what we're doing here. A kind of good summary of uh, outline of the passage comes from Timothy George. It involves five sets of two. Two mothers, 
two sons, two covenants, two mountains, and two cities. So let's, let's turn to the text. So if you would look, look at chapter 4, 21 through 25, and we're going to look at the first way of pursuing promise. And this is pursue, pursuing the promise by works leads us into slavery. Pursuing the promise by works can only lead us into slavery. And this is coming from verses 21 through 25. Paul writes this. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born, accord, born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, end quote. And so verse 21, Paul gets right back. So last week he's, 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 a, you know, he's emotionally um, attaching himself to the church. He's, he's talking about shared experience. He's using analogies of love and care that he has for the Galatians. And he's saying that they also had love and care for him early on. And then he's going to turn this week directly back into why you should not follow the Judaizers and their false teaching. So he's, he's right back in the thick of making arguments. And so Paul's countering the false teachers. He's beckoning for the Galatian Christians to not pursue right relationship with God by the law or by works. Right? And so he kicks off with a rhetorical question. He says this, tell me. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? And so this little phrase here, under the law, uh, should be read as submitted to the law as a means of gaining life and righteousness. So again, a misuse of the law. Tell me you who would marry yourself to the law so that you can be right with God. That's what he's talking about here when he says under the law. Um, and, and so, again, we see Galatians 4.4 going back. Christ himself was born under the law. Ever since Adam, we have been under the law. But you might anticipate a, a, a kind of question. Well, the law didn't come till Moses. There's a little bit of time between Adam and Moses. So how, are we, how, how did that work? Like between Adam and Moses, Paul actually writes this elsewhere. This is Romans 5. 13 through a little bit of 14, he says this, for, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. So though the Ten Commandments had not been enshrined and given to the people, you still have sin being counted against the people and death being given to the people. So what, what's going on there? Um, well, there's a, there's a good, I referenced it earlier, um, if, if you like light reading. Uh, the Second London Confession of 1689 has a, a good answer for this. It's pretty light reading, though, seriously. It's only like 40 pamphlet pages, um, but it's not that light, I guess. Uh, it says this, God gave Adam a law of comprehensive obedience written in his heart and a specific precept to not eat 
the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The same law that was first written in the human heart continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall. It was delivered by God on Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and was written in two tables. And so the argument, reading Romans 5, is that the law was there, it just wasn't physically there. It was written on their hearts, and that's why sin was still counted and death was still given from Adam to Moses. And then God takes that law that was written and carves it into stone and gives it as he makes covenant with his people. Um, so that's, that's kind of the argument. So the law cannot save, and yet we are still, in some sense, under the law until Christ came. That's Paul's argument. Now the Galatians here want to go back to being under the law. So let's look at verses 22 through 23. These serve as Paul's kind of quick summary of two stories from the book of Genesis. One comes from Genesis 16, and the other comes from Genesis 21. In Genesis 16, it kind of details Sarah and Abraham seemingly concluding that the offspring promised to them could not possibly come through Sarah because she's too old. It's, it's impossible for God's promise to actually come through Sarah. God promised Abraham, you'll have a son. Through him, the blessing will come. Sarah's too old. So there must be another way in which to bring about God's promise. And this is what happens in Genesis 16. In verse 2, Abraham listened to the voice of Sarah. And then in verse 3, Sarah took Hagar and gave her to Abraham. Does that sound a little familiar? Um, Adam listened to the voice of Eve. Eve took the fruit and gave it to Adam. And so even Moses right there, he's already trying to make us think about these echoes of the fall, of seeking righteousness by works and how it's broken. And so this is what Paul means when he says, but the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh. He means that there was a human in imagination and invention that came into the mind of Abraham and Sarah, they said, we will bring about the promise. How? Through Hagar. But that wasn't God's promise. It wasn't God's plan. So that's how we're setting up there. Then the Genesis 21 story details the birth of Isaac and summarize it, basically summarized in the first two verses. It says this, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And then she has Isaac. So Paul summarizes this in 23. While the son of the free woman was born through promise. And so he sets up these two stories from Genesis 16 to 21, and this is going to serve as kind of the launching point for the rest. And 24 is where it's going to get crazy. So I hope you're ready. 16 through 21. And then he says this. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. That word allegorically has been used to basically do all kinds of uh, uh, interesting and, and um, yeah, interesting, maybe even abusive things to the scriptures uh, over time. Basically, every piece of wood in the Old Testament is the cross, right? Because allegorically, there's an allegorical reading somewhere. Um, and so it's a very... Uh, touchy word. It's only used one time in all of scripture. 
So that makes it even better. You can't interpret it by using other places necessarily in scripture using just the word. We'll talk about the other thing. The only other places it's really used heavily is in ancient Greek philosophical writings for interpreting Greek myths. So there you go. That's, that's this interesting thing. And the problem with modern men and women, uh, we don't really understand Greek mythology and we don't really read Greek mythology, so that's not helpful there either. All right, so here's maybe a more helpful way to think of the word. Take allegorically and replace it with typologically. Oh, I know, you guys were just like, yes, you did it. <laughs> you made it so simple. You replaced a five-syllable word with another five-syllable word. Take typologically and replace it with this, the promise of Christ. The promise of Christ. So let me read it again. Now this may be interpreted through the promise of Christ. So let me give a, an analogy. Um, I'm going to a way older movie, so if it's a spoiler at this point, I'm sorry. Uh, there's a movie called Sixth Sense. It's got Bruce Willis in it. And you know, there's a kid that you don't know, well, he sees dead people, right? You know that throughout the movie. And Bruce Willis is counseling this kid. And there's this turning point, there's this twist toward the end where you finally make the connection. He sees dead people, he sees you, Bruce, Bruce, you're dead, what? right? Yeah, oh, sorry, sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> but once, once you get to the twist, you can go back and rewatch the movie and watch it in a completely different light. But the person who wrote the movie wrote it in that light. It's the same way with scripture. Scripture was written in that light, but it's not until the reveal of Christ that we can go back and read and see it for its fullness, right? That's, that's kind of the analogy there. Um, or maybe, kids, you play around with invisible ink and black lights, little black flashlights to you know, write secret codes. Right? Christ is the black light of the Old Testament. Uh, Augustine said it this way, the new is in the old concealed. The old is in the new revealed. Um, so to help us understand how Paul is using these two women allegorically without violating the intent of Moses and the Holy Spirit and Scripture itself, uh, let me give kind of another example of how we might do this outside of Paul, right? So Paul's using it in Genesis 16 21. I'm going to go to Genesis 4, and I'm going to try to interpret it allegorically without doing damage to the text, all right? So here's an example of what I mean by through the promise of uh, Christ. So uh, Genesis 4, here's the historical details. There's two brothers, Cain and Abel. They make two offerings to God. Uh, Hebrews 11 tells us one did by faith, one didn't. Uh, God receives Abel and his offering, and then it says God had no regard for Cain or his offering. Uh, Cain offered from the fruit of the ground. Uh, Abel offered the firstborn sheep of his flock. Um, and so then Cain takes Abel out to a field and murders him. So there's the historical details. Now, when we look at it through the promise of Christ, this is, this is also there. It's fuller. It's there. Um, so put on the promise of Christ. On the heels of God's promise of an offspring of Eve to fight, one is received by God and one is rejected. The one rejected allows sin then to rule over him and he murders his brother. 
violating the moral law. The serpent's offspring seemingly puts an end to the promised offspring of Eve. But then you go a little bit further after that story in Genesis 4, and you find Eve has another offspring, and she names him Seth. And I'm absolutely convinced she does this in faith of the promise of Christ. Because Seth means substitution. And she says, she states in promise, in that Genesis 3.15 promise, she says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Seth then has a son, and it says the people, for the first time, begin to worship Yahweh. The lens of the promise of Christ doesn't do damage to the historical story of Cain and Abel, but it gives so much more fullness that's just there, that Moses intends, that becomes even more clear when you look at it through what Christ has done. So these women are two covenants, back to our text. They're two covenants. That's what Paul says. We're going to interpret it allegorically. How are we going to interpret it allegorically? They're two covenants. They're, again, um, I spent a lot of time struggling with those two words because it, this is a, a difficult passage. Um, and so I hope the Lord has been uh, generous and merciful and will extend that to you all through my explanations. Um, so it can't be as simple as reading this as, oh, the Abrahamic covenant versus the Mosaic covenant. Can't be just simply, oh, Abraham's promise and Moses' law. Because again, it kind of does damage. Well, first, you know, the law's good. It's misusing the law that makes it bad. Second, Paul talks about two covenants that are both dealing with the story of Abraham. So it's around during Abraham, too. Um, it's Hagar and Sarah. It's not just uh, talking about the future. Um, so, so it can't be that. Exodus, then, another reason it can't be just Mosaic covenant versus Abrahamic promise. Exodus opens up with God hearing his children in slavery, suffering under Pharaoh, and remembering his promise with Abraham and then initiating the exodus, redeeming his people, bringing them out of Egypt. He then redeems his people, brings them to the mountain, gives them a law just so to enslave them again. That sounds a little absurd. So again, you don't want to pit Moses against Abraham. It can't merely just be the old covenant versus the new covenant because one is clearly referring to Abraham, which is related to Jesus, but also the Mosaic covenant was another administration of grace, as we just said. So both of these covenants are seen by allegory through two women that Abraham had children with. So it's related to Abraham. So what is Paul doing here? Again, covenant theology kind of solved it for me. Hagar does stand for a misuse or a going back to the Mosaic covenant as a means for righteousness which it was never intended to be, right? So we have a kind of going back. Even the Mosaic covenant was initiated by the Abrahamic promise, and it was a means of continuing the promise, but they're going back, and they're essentially turning a covenant of grace into a covenant of works. They're going to something that's supposed to point them to Christ and grow their faith and show them how to serve the Lord and please the Lord, and they're turning it into something of, I don't need the Lord I can make myself right before God. And so there's a kind of twisting. They're effectively turning it into a covenant 
of works. The law that Adam had and broke that was reiterated and carved in stone by Moses was meant to turn us to a need for another Adam, Christ Jesus, but instead they would put that burden that only one man could carry, Christ Jesus, back on their own backs and try to carry it themselves. Paul calls this according to the flesh as opposed to according to the spirit. Verse 25, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. Paul carries out this reading through the promise of Christ, and he focuses in upon Hagar. She's a slave, a bondservant of Sarah, and thus her children are born into slavery. Mount Sinai is where the law is inscribed in stone and given through Moses. And then Paul mentions Arabia in a kind of twofold way. First, it's a geographical location where the Ishmaelites lived after they left. When they were cast out, they went and they mostly lived in Arabia. And then kind of the second one, and this was pointed out to me by a guy named Thomas Schreiner. Um, he talked about how there's a, there's a kind of like stacking of stories in the Old Testament of this idea that they're outside of the promised land. And so now take that with the Judaizers. They're teaching you something that would keep you outside of the promised land. You don't want to be like that, right? You want to be inside the promised land. And so there, that's also a reason why he's mentioning Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. As a side note, uh, take it for what you will, um, Paul spent a significant portion of time in Arabia in Galatians 1.17 after his conversion to Christ. So he also is familiar with the geographic location, so he might be making some arguments from that. So Paul connects Hagar to, the, uh, to Mount Sinai and then connects them to modern-day Jerusalem, the Jews of his day. Jerusalem, the quote-unquote city of God, is now presented as the Jerusalem who is in slavery with her children. Why? Because she has sought to inherit the promise through works. She continues to take the law as a means of gaining righteousness with God, and it doesn't bear any fruit. It only bears the fruits of slavery. She has turned to the works of the law as a means of life and righteousness, she has taken the forbidden fruit and believes that this tree can now save her instead of trusting in the promise and walking according to the Spirit. Pursuing the promise of works, uh, by works, um, can only lead to slavery. That's Paul's point in this first couple of verses. He gives another, a second path, a second covenant. Pursuing the promise by grace leads us into freedom. You might also replace the word grace with faith. You might replace the word faith with spirit. All three of those work. Pursuing the promise by grace leads us to freedom. Pursuing the promise by faith leads us to freedom. Pursuing the promise by the spirit leads us to freedom. So he says this in 26 through 27. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband, uh, end quote. So the earthly Jerusalem, which is according to the flesh, is in slavery along with her children. And now Paul turns kind of beyond the sun to the heavenly Jerusalem. The earthly Jerusalem is now, 
but in sense, so is the heavenly Jerusalem, because he talks about we are, she is our mother, right? So there's an already not yet. But there's also a, a greater sense in which he calls the present Jerusalem present, but doesn't say that of the heavenly Jerusalem. Why? Because it's beyond present, right? It, it, it is more than just present. Um, she is from above. She is beyond present. Paul then turns to the Galatians and states, she is our mother, he never states that this is Sarah, but it's implied. Paul then employs, again, he reads this text through the promise of Christ. He quotes Isaiah 50. Remember, we kind of defined it as typological or quite literally viewing the text through the lens of promise of Christ. And what Paul has done with Genesis through Galatians 2 through 3, he's also been doing with the book of Isaiah. It's almost like Paul had the scroll of Genesis the scroll of Isaiah, as he's writing Galatians. He's reading uh, two big chunks of passage uh, from both of those things. So there's a, there's a, um, a theological journal um, that did a, a summary of a doctoral dissertation. I know this sounds thrilling, right? You're ready for this? Um, Matthew Harmon, he did his doctoral dissertation. He, he uh, named it this, She Must and Shall Go Free, Paul's Isionic Gospel in Galatians. And his whole dissertation is Paul uses Isaiah heavily throughout Galatians. So I just want to give a, a little just taste of the different ways that he points out. And then we're going to see how he's using Isaiah in our text. Um, so uh, we see Isaiah 49 alluded to throughout Galatians 1, where Paul seemingly presents himself as the servant spoken of in Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. We see Isaiah 53, that's the, the clearest passage on the crucifixion in the Old Testament. Uh, we see Isaiah 53, it influences Galatians 1 verse 4, 2 verse 20, 3 verse 1, and 3, 10 through 14, and, and a little bit of uh, 4 as well. When he then arrives to our text in Galatians 4, 27, we see Isaiah 54. Isaiah 54 then reads like this. The barren and desolate woman is the one who is the Jerusalem who is not pursuing the law as a means of righteousness. She appears barren and desolate, but the promise is that she will have more children than the married woman, who represents Jerusalem married to the law as a means of being right with God. And now you might say, okay, well, that. That sounds right in Isaiah, but how on earth do you get from Hagar and Sarah to that without doing damage to Isaiah's intention, Moses' intention? Is Paul just basically cherry-picking scripture? There's multiple reasons why Isaiah 54 comes up here in the context of Genesis 21, Sarah Hagar's story. First, Sarah was barren until the promise came. And this passage is about the analogy as a barren woman and a married woman. Um, second, Isaiah 54 is about two women and their offspring, and so is Genesis 21. Third, Sarah only appears in one other book in all of the Old Testament, and you probably can guess which one it is, Isaiah. She shows up in Isaiah 51.2, which I want to read because Paul's reading it. I'm convinced of it. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah, who bore you, for he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. And in the context of that is 
He's talking to Jews who would pursue being righteous. And what does he say? He doesn't say, obey the law. Look to the law for righteousness. He says, look to your father Abraham and your mother Sarah. And that's precisely the same argument that Paul's making to the Galatians. And Genesis is also making through Moses. And so he's using all of those things. So that sounds, uh, again, just about like what Paul is saying. He's just reading the Bible to us. And so, you know, one of the reasons we're doing Galatians is so that you can see how the apostles teach the church. But another thing that you get a benefit of when we go through an epistle is you see how the apostles read the Old Testament. And that's extremely important for us because we also obviously read the Old Testament. So there's a ton more to be said about Isaiah, uh, but let's just say it. I'm just going to give a couple other places of Isaiah 54 to you. This comes from Isaiah 54, 9 through 10. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. And so again, reading Isaiah 54, it makes a lot of sense why Paul chose that. It's in the context of Sarah being in Isaiah 52. It goes on the heels of Isaiah 53, the death of Christ, and it mentions the covenant of peace that will never be removed from the people of God, right? All of that's in Paul's argument. So pursuing the promise by works leads us only into slavery. Paul's now argument is pursuing the promise by grace only can lead us into freedom and will lead us into freedom. Faith, grace through faith is what makes us sons of Abraham and sons and daughters of Abraham and sons and daughters of Sarah, sons and daughters of the promise born according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. So there's the two, there's the two tracks that Paul lays out and then he uses Isaiah and Genesis to affirm those tracks. The next thing he does is application. He takes the promise of Christ and he gives four different ways to directly apply it to the Galatian churches, which we can then apply to ourselves as well. Um, so this is gonna, we, we have a couple of these. The promise of Abraham applied in four ways. So let's look at the first one. Christ alone makes us children of promise. And this is coming from verses 28 and also verse 31 through the first part of chapter 5, verse 1. I'll read both of those. Paul writes this in 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. That's what he says there, 28. And then 31 through 5, 1, he says this. So brothers, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. So Paul now takes the promise of Christ and he brings it home to the Galatians and hopefully to us as well. And he starts off by saying, you brothers, right? He's not treating them as hostile. He's treating them as family. You brothers are children of the promise. And then look at 31 again. He states it negatively, but he still starts off with that same lovely word. Brothers, we are not children of the slave but of the free woman. For freedom, Christ has set us free. This freedom is righteousness before God. This freedom is relationship with God. Christ has set us free so that we can freely relate to God as our Father. 
And thus, we can say, brothers, sisters, we are children of the promise. He said this early in, in, in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He also implied this, this same statement, the death of Christ, highly in this context, because again, remember, he quotes Isaiah 54.1, and if you could just erase the chapter and the verse markers, because those were added later, right? The books are actually just written. There's no chapter verse markers in the original manuscripts. If you erase those and you think about it, what comes right before 54.1? Chapter 53. What's chapter 53 about? The death of So that's our first one. Christ alone makes us uh, children of the promise. Uh, this, the, I said that was our first one. That's what I meant to say. Our second one, Christians expect suffering and persecution. Expect suffering and persecution. And this comes from verse 29. But just as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. So he's going back into the Genesis 21 story. Isaac has been born. Ishmael's a little bit older than Isaac. And in the story, Sarah sees Ishmael laughing at Isaac. Now, we don't know anything beyond that. It says laughing. It could mean, like, is he mocking? It, did Isaac just, like, wreck his bike? He didn't have a bike. But did he just wreck his bike and potentially, like, get deadly hurt? And he's just like, ha-ha, yes. We don't know any of the details. Like, it could be just as innocent as... I, you know, children, I don't know if you ever laugh at each other when you're, um, you know, doing bad things. Or adults, do you ever laugh at, uh, never mind. Moving on. Um, and so, we that's a pretty strong interpretation, right? This seems hardly warranted by the text in Genesis 21. It just seems like, oh, child's laughing. Sarah's a little bit threatened by Ishmael and Hagar, because of status and heir and inheritance and all that. And so she's just like, get out of here. We don't want this anymore, right? But what is Paul doing here? Again, look through the promise of Christ. That's what Paul's doing here. There were two brothers focused upon before, just one set of twos focused upon before Ishmael and Isaac. And we talked about them already, Cain and Abel. And what was Cain doing? Cain was killing his brother because he allowed sin to rule over him but behind that, Satan was trying to stomp out the promise of Christ. And so Paul's looking at this and he's saying, there is a pattern throughout scripture that wherever the promise of Christ is, the opposition of the serpent will have enmity with it. And he's taking that laughing, whether it's intentionally evil or it's just a little bit of evil, he's taking that laughing and say that fits this pattern. Christians, you should expect it too. Why? because you're sons and daughters of the promise. The serpent's offspring always has enmity with Eve's offspring, Abraham's offspring, David's offspring, Jesus and his church. Like then, like now. Satan has always sought to persecute the offspring of Eve, Christ and his people. And so sometimes he causes them to suffer or die from violence or unjust violence. Other times he inflicts them with terrible bouts of false teaching that would threaten to call them back to returning to under the law, right? That's what the Galatians here seem to be experiencing the, the most of. So remedy, you can expect persecution 
if we are born of the Spirit, your values will be under attack. Uh, one of my, my good friends, uh, he's an Anglican priest. He reminded me of this recently. He, he talked about the early persecutions within Rome. Uh, the early Christians were persecuted as Rome. Not, they didn't yell at them and say, hey, Christians, that's why we're persecuting you. They called them atheists because they refused to worship the many gods of the Romans, and they only re- worshiped one god. So they were atheists. They hated, they hated God. Um, they were cannibals because they talked about eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ in communion. They were persecuted for being cannibals. And then they were persecuted for being haters of men because they didn't participate in a lot of the normal activities of the Roman citizens. So antisocial. You, why are you not doing, why are you not going to the games, you know, where we uh, kill people and, and cheer for them? Uh, things like that. So none of these reasons were because they were particularly naming the name of Christ, right? That's kind of the point here. And so the values of the heavenly Jerusalem are not the values of the earthly Jerusalem. It might not be because we name the name of Christ, but it might be because we follow Christ and carry his values. And so our values get attacked. Thus, Christ gets attacked. Um, So Christians should expect Suffering out that one. Um, the next one, the third one. Cast out that which would replace Christ. And this comes from verse 30. Paul continues, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So Paul continues in the Genesis 21 story. He quotes verse 10 where Sarah calls upon Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael. And notice here that Paul says, what does scripture say? He doesn't say, what does Sarah say? So there's something more than just, Sarah says it, but Sarah says it seemingly according to the very will of God, which is why God then reminds Abraham, do what she says. You know, we know that you're struggling with this, Abraham, do what she says. So, so scripture says this, right? And the idea here is Sarah was trying to bring about the promise according to her own human imagination and works by giving Abraham Hagar. And now Sarah is trying to protect that very promise by casting out Hagar and her son, Ishmael. Whether the intentions of her heart were true or she was merely jealous of Hagar, Ishmael, or whatever, we don't know any of that, right? But this is how Paul's kind of reading that. He's reading it in the terms of the two seeds going to combat throughout eternity, uh, but what does this mean, this, this casting out? Does it, what does this mean to us? Paul then tells the Galatians, cast out the slave woman and her son. So what, what is he saying to them? I think he's saying something like, you know the Judaizers that keep telling you to go back under the law and use it as a means of gaining righteousness and life before God? You shouldn't listen to them. They should have no place. There should be no uh, platform or forum of their teaching going to you right? Cast that teaching out. And so the principle here is cast out that which would replace Christ as a means of life and salvation. The last one comes from five, verse one. Submit not again to a yoke of slavery. Paul says this, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's not the yoke of the law, again, that Paul's worried about. He's 
worried about the misuse of the law. It's the yoke of the law as a means of salvation, of being right before God. So he's saying to him, stand firm in the good news of Christ and submit not again to misusing the law for goodness before God, for righteousness before God. He's saying what the early church also said in the first church council in Acts 15. This is what Paul said, or sorry, Peter, the apostle Peter says this in Acts 15, verses 7 through 11, and it's verbatim what Paul means here. Brothers, again, that word brothers, which includes sisters. Brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by the mouth, by, sorry, that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to. To bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So again, he pursue it by works of the law, pursue it by grace. Peter's saying the same thing there. So, so let's conclude in kind of the way that we began. Remedy, let's not be misusers of the law and, and, and see it as evil, but use it for the, the good ways that it's intended. Let's be proper users of it. Use the Ten Commandments as a mirror and as a guide, but not as a husband and as a means of gaining life and righteousness. Let's not seek to try and fulfill that covenant of works that our father, Adam, and finally. Let's not seek to turn the covenant given to us in the blood of Christ into a covenant of works, but rather in both of these things, the law and the covenant of works, let's strive to see the beauty of our Savior, Jesus, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. This Jesus, brothers and sisters, fulfilled the law perfectly and did what the first Adam did not. He earned righteousness and life before God. He kept the law. He fulfilled the covenant of works, and yet he took on its chief curse, death. He was quite literally crowned with thorns, which was a result of the fall. And then he died, which was a result of the fall. He fulfilled the covenant of works that he might then give to us and mediate to us a new covenant, one in his blood, one where God and God alone takes on its requirements on our behalf. Oh, sweet covenant of grace. The prophet Isaiah called it the covenant of of peace in Isaiah 54. The prophet Jeremiah called it the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. The prophet Ezekiel called it the everlasting covenant in Ezekiel 16. God called it the promise of the snake crusher in the robes of righteousness in Genesis 3. He called it the offspring of Abraham who will bless all the families of the earth in Genesis 12 and 15. He called it the son of David who would sit on the throne 
forever and ever to rule over God's people in 2 Samuel 7. And because of Christ, we have all these things. Because of Christ, we with the psalmist can also say, your law is my delight. Because no longer is it just a mirror that shows us the holiness of God and the fallenness of man and the need of our Savior. It's a looking glass through which we can see the immaculate obedience of Jesus on our behalf. And we can delight and rejoice. For God has come to bring us back to himself. Let's pray. Um, Father, I said a lot of words and... Um, I just pray that your truth would be what sticks, would be what's sowed into my heart and what sowed into the hearts of anyone who's listening. Lord, I pray that you would give growth. Uh, we need Jesus. Um, simply put, we need Jesus and we can't, we, we have no reason for confidence within any ounce of our own strength, of our own hearts. There's nothing that we can turn to within as a means of, of being right with you, of, of being back with you as our Father. And so I pray that everything that has been said, everything that we pray, everything that we sing today would be a means of, of expelling that notion, of, of causing us not to look inward but to look outward, to look to Christ and to see that he has provided everything that is necessary for our lives, for our salvation for our relationship with you, for our relationship with each other, for our jobs, for, for our raising of children, for our friendships, for our neighborly love, that he is all sufficient for us and that he loves us, that when he sees us in our sin, his grace, his love, his mercy only grows greater We just ask that you would show them to us today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.